Welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Mark Weissman, a practicing physician and CMIO, and the host of CMIO Podcast. So thanks for joining me today. I'm going to cover three news articles, and then if I have time, I'm going to cover my seven favorite rants. That's right, I'm going to list off seven things that just fire me up in life, and all related to being a CMIO, and you'll see if any of these resonate with you. So anyway, let's uh, let's get on with the show today. Um, first article I want to talk about comes out of Healthcare IT News. Story came out today um, at Legacy Health a career progression mapping program aids workforce development. It's by Bill Sawicki. Um, this is an amazing article. And so just to read you a couple of the key points here, one of the things that they did was to implement this um, career progression mapping with job descriptions. They then identified the skills, both technical and soft, that were needed and helped develop them, gave them protected time to do this development. They had clear lines from entry level up to progressive uh, sources of responsibility up to senior analysts in the IT department. They had a strong culture to hire entry level positions from outside, but then promote from within for the senior level. How fantastic is that? Is that what all of our organizations look like? I suspect not all of them. Um, this is from the, the Chief Information and Administrative Officer at Legacy Health, uh, John, and he says, when I got here in 2012, that was not the standard operational procedure and staff did not really feel we were at a place to grow with their careers. And so collectively, the IT management team started a multi-year effort to write effective and relevant job descriptions draw career ladders, compensate the staff at market competitive rates, establish 5% protected time for professional development, build succession planning for lead workers to the CIO, and set a strong commitment for internal promotion. So they then go on to talk a little bit about, well, what, what are the soft skill development that needs to get done? And they're talking about empathy and concern, accountability, follow through, and professionalism goes on to say that our managers say in fact that they hire for the soft skills. That's the differentiator. They can find the technical skills. The soft skills are the ones that are making the decision for their people. Promotion comes to those with both the hard skills but also knowing how to interact with users, diffuse a hard situation, interview users to elicit the real problem or real need and collaborate with others inside and outside of IS. What wonderful philosophies. I'm just reading this and saying this is this is phenomenal. Um, so why do, do CI, CMIOs need to know about this? Well, because that C in our uh, title stands for chief and we need to lead and that's part of what we need to do is help develop others. Most of us are very dependent upon both the uh, hard skills and the soft skills of the analysts. You may have worked with analysts who do not have that soft skill set and it, they can be very difficult to work with because our customers are our other providers or operational leaders. They don't necessarily like working with people 
who don't have that soft skill set. Um, they technical skills can be brilliant, but that's still very limiting to to a person if they don't have that ability to communicate and be an effective uh, professional that has that follow through. That's so important. Um, so we're, we're dependent upon these analysts. Sometimes they'll report directly to us, but if they don't, well, we still can advocate for them to get training, particularly in the technical skills side. Uh, I've done this frequently where uh, I find there's a deficiency in the organization. Be like, hey, we really need to, to build up strength in this one area. And fortunately, I work right now with a, with a really good CIO who's like, yeah, well, if we need it, of course, let's, let's do that. Um, so I think it's important for the CMIOs to be advocating for their analysts. They're going to be working very close with them, sometimes closer than what the CIO is working with them, and can make the recommendations on the training plans and, and helping to budget for, um, for the year about, wow, we really seem soft in this one area. We need to cross-train more in this area. And you'll understand where the weaknesses are on, on your teams. The uh, softer skills, the um, the skills about empathy and follow-through, I think those are best done in the moment, you know, coaching and positive feedback when you see the skills happening in action. I'll give you an example, a story about this. I was uh, working with an analyst that I think is fairly introverted, and she is not known for her, her customer service skill set, but there was an issue and I needed her help with it. There was a provider who was having a technical problem and couldn't get into something. And I asked her for help and followed up the next day just to you know, see if the issue got resolved. And she said, absolutely, the issue was fixed. She then called the provider to let them know and asked them if there was anything else she could do. And my jaw hit the ground. I mean, that was spot on. Perfect. So yeah, of course, I gave her the positive feedback. And if your system has those, um, you know, the HR usually puts out these, these notification systems. Ours is called the, either Star Awards or oh, some kind of, you know, you're, you're being recognized kind of uh, system. Most of the time it's done through email. And you put in the details of what this person did and then their manager gets notified and the person who did the good thing gets notified. It's it's an electronic pat on the back, but believe me, it's worth something. People like to be recognized. I think we all came into healthcare because we want to want to help patients and we, we want to feel good about what we do, but it's really nice when your colleagues recognize you and say, hey, you did a good job with that. So if you're not doing that enough, do it more often. It is really important to building up the soft skills of your teams. But uh, speaking of leadership planning, how about, how about for us providers? Um, this leadership stuff doesn't happen by accident. So are you, as CMIOs or associate CMIOs, developing the next round of leaders? Is there a pathway in your organization for a part-time provider informaticist to move to an associate CMIO or CMIO role? Is that, is that all clearly defined and spelled out about how that happens? Uh, the, yes, there, of course, there's the informatics and the analytics to learn, but yeah, there's also some of these skills that need to be developed in change management, project management, conflict resolution, and probably the, the one that we, we need the most help with is the business of healthcare. And it's the one that I probably use the most as people come up to me and they're asking me to put alerts into the system to help resolve this particular business case or, or that 
you need to understand the business of healthcare. And that's something that most of us get on the job training. It's just, I mean, some of us have MBAs, um, which I'm not entirely sure advances my knowledge of business and healthcare. Really, that is just learned on the job, as a lot of these things are for us. If your organization is fortunate enough to put on leadership development programs and has a defined pathway for leadership in your organization, hopefully you're taking advantage and, and putting your colleagues who you see have leadership potential into those roles. Uh, what I love about what Legacy did is they gave people protected time to go out and advance their skills. That is very rare. I cannot think of another organization in healthcare off the top of my head uh, that, that is doing that. So anyway, that's the first story is about Legacy Health and what a fantastic people development story. And uh, of course, we all, we all would want to work in that kind of environment. I'm sure their turnover is low and their attention is very high. The next article I want to touch on here um, comes out of Becker's Hospital Review, and it was published on July 9th. Hospital CFOs are stepping into cybersecurity roles. And this one caught my eye because I'm wondering, well, first of all, I don't think my CFO is all that involved in cybersecurity, but um, I, I just don't picture it. But they're saying that, that there are 77% of the executives that they surveyed had a growing concern for readiness to respond and 88% that the reason for the uneasiness was due to underfunding. And that's just counter to some of the things that I'm hearing and feeling about cybersecurity. Uh, my CEO says that we're always one click away from total disaster and having one of our uh, care partners put in their credentials and then some bad guys got them and the system is under attack. And I just don't see the CFO being the one to carry the message out to the masses. I think there's certainly part of it. There's plenty of people that the CFO probably does help manage, particularly those who are involved in collecting money, front desk people, registration, if that reports to the CFO in your organization. Absolutely, those people are touching some very valuable information, and there's definitely risk, and the CFO can help promote that culture of security. And by that, I don't mean just having people watch their one net learning, um, you know, 30 minute video once a year. We, we can do more than, than that. I think CMIOs and CNIOs are in a unique position here. We are operational as well as IT, and we touch a huge part of the organization if you think about all the clinical people that are, that are involved. And those are the people who have access to most parts of the chart. So I think they, they the one, they're the ones who can do the most damage. So, okay, I get it. They're saying the CFOs are stepping into cybersecurity. Um, I think it should be more of our operationally aligned leaders that are engaging in cybersecurity. And I don't think that my education on cybersecurity is all that good, to be honest with you. So I'm um, looking for some advice from you all here. There is a cybersecurity certificate from the Harvard Extension School, and it's four courses, and it goes over networks and communication technology, architecture, and understanding the security risks and how to mitigate those and develop the uh, response plans for them. I... 
I'm thinking of taking this course. I don't know. I think I should, I, I should have this knowledge too. So I'm interested in what other CMIOs are doing in terms of beefing up their cybersecurity knowledge, or do we just leave it to our CISO or CIOs to, uh, to address? Final story I want to talk on actually came out a little while ago. It's in a, it's, this is a clinical article. It came out in May. Uh, May 1st, 2019, in a journal of hematology. This, uh, the title is the, Effective the Effectiveness of Sequential Compression Devices in Prevention of Venous Thromboembolism in Medically Ill Hospitalized Patients, a Retrospective Cohort Study. And the authors of this were, I believe, either fellows or residents that were coming out of the University of Michigan, was one of them, and the other one was out of the University of Nebraska Medical Center. And so they looked at about 31,000 patients, and they looked at how many DVTs happened in those who were on compression stockings versus those who were not, and there was a, about 20,000 who were in the compression stocking arm and about, about 11,000 who were not. And the analysis showed no significant difference in VTE incidents in, in between the groups with an odds ratio of 0.99. As many of you know from my previous podcast here, I am studying for my informatics boards and I now know what odds ratios are. I've studied them again. I know I covered them in med school too. It's been a while. But yeah, so an odds ratio of 0.99 means there's basically, there is no difference between the two groups. Um, so why do CMIOs need to know about this? Because these things are in our order sets. And I went and looked and oh my goodness, there's a ton of them that are pre-selected, defaulted in, that the sequential stockings are in there. And so now what? Um, these things have costs. They have the cost of the equipment, uh, nursing time and putting them on and taking them off. And I'm sure they cause fall risk by people tripping over all the hoses and uh, it gets to, it can cause tissue injury if they're not monitored. So this became a discussion and, and I'm sure you've got VTE groups in your in your organizations that, that deal with uh, DVT prevention. And the question is now is, well, what do we do with this? I mean, is, is this enough? A retrospective trial? Are we ever going to get that randomized, controlled clinical trial? Absolutely not. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, there's no large pharmaceutical company that's going to fund this. So uh, I think the data we have is, is as good as it's going to get. And so my gut feeling says is what I'm going to look to do after getting together some other clinicians and running it through the Department of Medicine is, hey, let's not have it defaulted as checked. Still have it there as an option. And see, I mean, is this something for medical patients that we want to have? Now, for surgical patients, the data looks pretty good. We should be using them. But this was all about medically ill hospitalized patients. So in our medical patients, I'm thinking we need to reassess this. Part of our job as CMIOs is to keep up on the literature and as things come out um, to, to reassess. All right. So now I'm going to move on to my rants. So... These are sayings or, or little things that I've picked up along the way that uh, if I remember who the brilliant leader was who, who told it to me, um, then I'll certainly try to give them credit. Unfortunately, I don't remember for, for many of them. So here's, here we go. Number one, 
So we do what is hard for IT if it makes it easier for clinicians. And I don't remember the doctor who said it, but he was standing up on stage at a UGM presentation at, at Epic and was talking about the um, provider efficiency program that they had created and the teams of, of providers that would go out and analysts to, to help their, their colleagues. And it just resonated with me that we don't always do this, but we really should. I understand that if um, our, uh, the initial view that you give a provider, if it's uniform across all the specialties, how much easier is that on IT to maintain? But cardiologists like to see things differently than oncologists. They're looking for different things. They want different things to be up at the top so they don't have to scroll to get them. So this one is a bit controversial. My IT colleagues don't always love this, but I like it. We do what's hard for IT if it's going to make the lives of our practicing clinicians better because they're on the front lines and they're the ones who are touching the patients. If we make their lives better, the patients' lives are better, and that's what gives us our job satisfaction. So um, that's my rant number one. Let me know if you, if you absolutely hate that one. Number two, this one, this one's mine. We train to a level of proficiency before a provider touches a patient. So this relates to training providers on our IT tools, um, particularly the EMR. I believe right now most of our training programs out there are training to a level that I call survival. So you get your provider to where they're good enough, they can log in, they can put in a few orders and write a note, and then you throw them into the unit or into the clinic and say, good luck, we'll be around if you, if you need us, just, just call us. And now the first patient experiences that this provider is going to have are going to be very awkward. They are not proficient in their tools, and this is unique to the healthcare industry, I believe. I do not believe that the airline industry takes a pilot and says, yes, I know you were trained on a different airplane, but you can fly this one today. It's going to be okay. Just here's a tip sheet and we'll be around if you need us. Just give us a call. So no, that doesn't happen. These pilots are of course going to be proficient on the technology before they get into an airplane to fly it. And I believe our patients deserve that. It is difficult sometimes to convince leadership that we need to spend the time and the money to train providers to get to that level of proficiency because the clock's ticking, the return on investment is, is being counted, the provider's sitting here and we're paying them and they're not generating RVUs, what a tragedy, but there's a return on investment that comes later on by having proficient providers and the patients get a better experience. So I, I believe number two is we train to a level of proficiency. Number three, this one came from another provider, a uh, doctor, and I forget who he was. I apologize. Maybe you'll write to me and, and take credit for this one. An infinite number of alerts does not make us infinitely safer. Oh, I love that. Think about that on a graph. So as the, the number of alerts are going up, are we going to continue to get safer and safer? And the answer, of course, is no. No, at some point, these alerts are not making us safer. And I was following a provider the other day and just kind of watching what he was doing. He clicked through uh, an alert, and I asked him, what was that you just clicked through? He had no idea. He, he was just on autopilot. He knew exactly where to click to shut that thing off and get it out of his way. Um, I believe that we are in a state where we have too many alerts and the ones that matter 
are not getting recognized. So an infinite number of alerts does not make us infinitely safer. I love that saying. Number four, this one I do know who it came from. This one came from a Dr. Craig Joseph. Uh, who I think is one of the funniest providers I've ever read. He's, he, I follow him on LinkedIn. You should too. I believe he's working for Epic now. He's been a CMIO. Uh, I believe he does some consulting as well. So, and I'm sorry, Craig, if I, if I mess up the exact quote here, but it was something to the effect of, our customers are not always right, and we need to deliver a product that exceeds their expectations. And what he was talking about was when we're building something for a provider, we don't always give them exactly what they ask for. Yes, I understand that they wanted an order set that has every single possible order known to mankind in it, and it's 20,000 lines long, but we know better. As informaticists, as CMIOs with our experience, we know that they are not right, and that that would not be an effective tool for them, and we should deliver to them a product that is going to be better than what they asked for. And I see this a lot when the analysts go and say, yeah, yeah, we, we built them what they asked for, so it's not our fault that it's terrible. Mm, I don't buy that. It, it, we know better. We need to be delivering a better product. And the analysts need to have that confidence and that collaboration and usually a provider informaticist sitting with them to say, hey, you know, I got your back on this. I know you're building it correctly. We'll convince the provider that what they are trying to do is going to cause more confusion. And maybe it would work for, for just them, but for their colleagues, it's going to not be intuitive. We need to build this right. So uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Craig Joseph. Our customers are not always right, and we should be delivering a better product. Number five, for IT to build trust, you have to be transparent. And it's an area which I think a lot of IT departments struggle with. Um, IT is sometimes known as a black box. You put the ticket in and then you never have any idea where that ticket is. Is it being worked on? When will it be done? For our operational leaders, this drives them absolutely crazy because they've got programs they're trying to roll out, initiatives they're working on. They've got goals that they need to achieve. And so when they can't see what's going on, they assume nothing's going on. It may very well be that IT is working on really critically important things for someone else in the organization. But to the one person who doesn't get their project worked on, to them IT has done nothing. The answer to this, the magic, the beauty is transparency. And so if you have analysts that are working under you or you have the ability to influence this, open up the black box. The way this works, and I've seen this work really well right now in our organization where our, our, our team is with the analysts, they're sitting down with the operational leaders every two weeks and they put up on the screen, these are the projects that are outstanding, here's what's in the backlog, now you pick your top three, what do you want us to work on? And they just put that transparency out there and they can talk about what's holding this one up and, and gee, if the providers would engage with us on this one topic, we might be able to move it along faster because not all roadblocks are in IT, so very well could be on the operation side. That kind of transparency goes both ways. So for that trust to happen, there has to be transparency. That is my rant number five. Kind of going along with that is rant number six. And this one comes from my uh, colleague and friend, Dave Torgerson, who is the Chief Analytics Officer at uh, Centara Healthcare. And Dave taught me something really, really great. 
Operations determines the what and the when, and IT determines the who and the how. And I'm talking about project prioritization. So inevitably, you will be asked for the great project that you just go ahead and suggest, well, what's the priority of this? And the answer always will be, well, let's ask the operational leaders. All of us know how this works. Those operational leaders are getting goals that are derived from the strategic plan, and they are usually financially incentivized to hit those goals. And so what's important to them are things that are going to help them hit those goals, and those are things that are important for the organization. That's why it's in our strategic plan. So sometimes I'll see that IT will come up with their own strategic plan, and that makes sense for certain things, particularly maintenance items. So this prioritization piece I'm talking about now is for the project work. It does not apply to break fix and it does not apply to maintenance. Of course, IT is going to do those and you're going to do those as rapidly or as necessary as whenever your vendor says you must upgrade, you're going to have to do that. But there's some capacity left over for project work and how that um, project work gets allocated can be very contentious as people fight for resources. We generally do not want to be in the middle of this. Our goal is to explain what these things are so that our operational leaders will understand what the topics are. But the what and the when, let the chief operating officer make that decision or your chief nursing officer. Let them fight it out. If you're in a multi-hospital system, let the hospital presidents all arm wrestle. And, and usually the largest hospital will win and then they will get their projects done. But, you know, you've got these providers and they're, they're in this little two-person clinic out in the middle of nowhere and they're in a specialty that, that you, you have very few of, uh, of these type of providers and they want their project done and they're talking to the CEO's um, um, golfing buddy who's then going to go tell the CEO to get this project done and you get into prioritization through whoever screams the loudest. We want to avoid that. We have a process, and the process is that operations will determine what gets done and when it needs to be done by, but IT needs to be able to decide who is going to do that work and how is it going to get done, with what tools will we use, what methodologies, what's our standards that we maintain when we're delivering a product. That's all determined on the IT side. I have found this to be incredibly effective and it gets me out of the middle of these, well, what is the priority kind of conversations. Even when I'm suggesting the product, I do not suggest the, the priority of it. That I, I always will have an operational leader with a project that I'm doing and it is their job to go fight for their project with their superiors and eventually the, the leading operational officer is going to make that decision as to what work is getting done and when. Last one. Last one, it says, we meet people where they are and in the format they need. And this one is about training. And you probably have seen us do this one a little bit funny. So we're all preparing for an upgrade and we'll send out a tip sheet and we'll send it out by email. And then we'll go, oh, we did our job. They, they don't read their email. It's their fault. And then the upgrade happens and the providers are confused and unhappy. And we go, well, we told them, we, we gave them an email, we put up a tip sheet in the, in the physician's lounge, we, we, we are covered. And that is not right. We have to meet people where they are. And so if that means getting up at 7 in the morning and doing some early morning breakfast session, drop-in sessions, 
or swinging by the the OR waiting area and and catching some providers while um, they're waiting for their case to start. Um, we've got to do that and we've got to give it to them in the format that they are able to digest it in. So they may very well like an email to them after, but they really would love it if you just went over it with them first and they'll follow up on that email later and then it'll make more sense to them. Um, I think this is a weak spot for those of us um, who are doing training for the providers, CMIOs. We, we really need to make sure that our staff, our trainers, are out there meeting people where they are. Uh, I loved it. My, my previous organization, our trainers did not have desks. They, they were always supposed to be out where the people are. Um, I think that that's a good model. Um, I, it may be a little extreme, but there's value in having our analysts out there being visible and being able to connect and communicate. So that's number seven, meeting people where they are in the format they need. And that is my final rant. So um, we've got uh, good things coming up here. On this Later this week, I've got Dr. Todd Burstan from Oshner in uh, New Orleans, who's going to be on the show talking about problem-oriented charting. My goodness, this guy is the master how he got his organization to get to these levels of acceptance of problem-oriented charting. You've got to catch that show. And we've got a couple of other good CMIOs coming up on in the next uh, week or two, and I'll tell you more about that as we get closer. So thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. I've been your host, Dr. Mark Weissman, and you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. You can email me at cmiopodcast at gmail.com or go to the website, cmiopodcast.com. Send me your shows, your ideas for shows, guests you would like to hear from, general feedback. Tell me whether or not I should do that cybersecurity course or not. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode.